morning. I jumped the gun right there because uh, there's one thing that I forgot to do when they asked me to come and teach, and that was ask them how much time I had. And um, and so we're we're going to try to get you guys out before dinner. Um, <laughs> forgive me. I, I do. I have sympathy for for the Sunday school teachers and stuff. Like I get what that's like. Um, but bear with me. I'm going to try to talk a little. A little fast, uh, so I might fumble a few times, but let's just get right down to it. Luke chapter 21. You guys all got your swords, of course, because you're in church. Why wouldn't you? Luke chapter 21. The text is going to be 5 through uh, 19, but we're going to take uh, 5 through 9 first. Now take that chunk, and then we'll take the second chunk. So Luke chapter 21, 5 through 9 says, while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, Jesus said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Verse 8, and Jesus said, see that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand, but do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, it's a funny word, just terrible things. Do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. And so here's what we have here. There were these people that had already come in and possessed the land and possessed the people of Israel. And they would continue to possess the land and take over the land and erase and establish cultural and societal and historical icons of the Jewish people, and those people were called the Romans. I think you've probably heard of them. And and as we all know, the Romans were a domineering powerhouse that nobody at that time could stand up against. Uh, They were a superpower, and they were occupying everything, including Jerusalem. And as we all know, in AD 70, Titus of Rome came in, and this is kind of what we're talking about here. We'll circle around to it. And he dismantled the Jews' greatest icon, greatest monument, greatest structure, the temple. Jesus here is giving his disciples the 411 on that. He's giving them some, some inside info of this thing that would shortly happen about 37 years into the future from this point. Now imagine for a moment what it would have been like for these dudes to sit here and hear Jesus say this to them. Like just, just for a second. Right. Because they had just come out of the temple. We have the whole story, right, of the, the widow's might. Like you remember that they were in there and they're they're observing. Jesus is using another uh, 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 taking another teaching opportunity as they watch this woman that has nothing, put everything right into the into the temple. And then this dude that had everything give nothing. Right. And they had just walked out from that. And, and the disciples like stop and they just look and they're just admiring the temple. They're admiring the structure. They're admiring how absolutely awesome it is. They're kind of blowing this big pride bubble, you know what I mean, over over their temple. And then Jesus just kind of like sticks his finger out and pops it. That's kind of what he like does here. He's like, yeah, it's pretty cool, isn't it? Well, it's going down. It's going down completely. And and I wonder if any of them began to question like Jesus' sanity at this point. Like maybe like his cheese had slid off his cracker because like... Um, Something like this would have been really hard to imagine for guys like this at that time. The temple was considered to be by many at that time greater than the so-called seven wonders of the world that existed 
at that time. That's how amazing this structure was. It was an architectural masterpiece. And Jesus says it's going to be destroyed, dismantled even, in verse 6. Like taken apart, unless that's metaphor. But it doesn't seem to be. If you go over there today, there is a, there is a, uh, a stone that was uh, not a cornerstone, but it was a foundation stone, a ground stone that still exists. It is 45 feet by 11 and a half feet by 12 feet, coming in at a whopping 570 tons. So you couldn't just walk in there back then without the earth movers and stuff that we have and start pushing things. Like, it would be a feat. Like, you would have to really want to make a statement if you were going to dismantle something like this. And I don't even think that's what it was. Most historians agree that when Titus came in and they ransacked the temple, the Roman soldiers fired the inside of the temple, which had large amounts of gold inlaid in it. And they realized after the gold started to melt that the gold was running between the cracks of the stones. So the stones had to go. That's actually how it came to be that the ta- that, 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 that not one stone was left upon another. It's because Rome wanted to make sure they weren't missing out on any of that gold that was running between the cracks. So they took that thing apart. That's why there's no temple over there today if you go over there. The structure would certainly be able to still stand if someone hadn't taken it apart. So it doesn't seem that Jesus was just being metaphorical here, not one stone upon another, because that just means destruction, like severe destruction. It seems like like he was being serious when he said that. Pretty interesting stuff. But how, how devastating would it have been for these disciples to hear what it is that Jesus is saying? Like, that this thing would cease to stand, and it would cease to be seen, and it would cease to be accessed. Right? That it would cease to exist. Think for a moment what this temple was for them. What it represented for the Jew. It represented their autonomy. This very thing that's being challenged. That they are individuals. That they do their own thing. That they are separate. We are our own. We are independent people. And the temple said that when you looked at it. Nobody tells us what to do or how to live. It also said, probably more importantly, we are God's people. We are God's people. We don't belong to anybody. We are God's nation. We are God's elect. We are God's chosen. There is no one like this. Nobody else could say this. Right? It said to them, we are special and we are unique. Every time they walked into it or every time that they looked at it because of what God had made them as a people. See, the temple was a structure not just of worship, but of identity. Of identity. An everyday visual marker that said, this is who we are. And so when Jesus dropped this on him, he was dropping a bomb. A huge bomb. The disciples respond immediately when... Right, like when is this going down and how are we going to know when it's about to go down? Which is a comforting response because it seems that even though they might have thought he was a bit crazy for it, initially, like they believed him. Like when's when's this going to happen? And Jesus, in typical Jesus fashion, does not answer their question directly. But rather addresses that which they really need to know about it. That's what he does. That being that, imposters will come on the scene, counterfeits, pretending to be him, and national threats will continue to escalate, but chill. 
right? Like, don't get anxious because, like, this thing's going to take some time to unfold. That's what he's telling them here. So just relax and stand firm. Now, I do want us to know real quick here that Jesus is absolutely speaking to them. A prophecy that concerns them. Those guys that were standing there that day, living at that time, he is speaking to them. He is addressing them. He's enlightening them on something they're really going to experience and live through and see. In fact, in Matthew's account, which is the Olivet Discourse, chapter 24, um, after this portion of the dialogue, Jesus adds there, Matthew adds there, rather, of Jesus, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So he's talking to them. And I'm not allowed to get into any specified eschatology, uh, so I'm just going to leave it there. It happened then. The bottom line is this temple bomb, this temple prophecy he just dropped, they did see. They did experience. They might have thought that Jesus was nuts when he said it, but they didn't think so in AD 70 when it happened. Right? So Jesus has given them some bad news here, but, but wait, there's more. Right? Don't you love those commercials? All right, here we go. We're going to go ahead and take 10 through uh, 19. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes. In various places, famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But there, uh, but be- before all this, they will lay their hands on you and they will persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and the prisons. You will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to Withstand or contradict. 16. You will be delivered even up by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you, they're going to put to death. You will be hated for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head will perish by your endurance. You will gain your lives. Isn't this awesome? Isn't this just a great text? You know? Just so and so like like things are going from bad to worse. You know what I mean? First they're gonna destroy your temple, Jesus says, and then they're and then they're gonna destroy you, right? Like thank you, Jesus. Where do I sign up? You know? So so Jesus here like establishes I think there was this quote, I'm sorry, uh that was uh I I think that it was um C. S. Lewis. They had this awesome quote that was like, if, 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 if you're looking for a religion that will make you happy, I have a bottle of port that will do that. Like wine. Right? He says, if that's what you're looking for, I do not recommend Christianity. This is what we're talking about here. Right? So, so like Jesus establishes this national and international global distress and unrest, verse 10, that will exist and will continue for them. And then he establishes a distress and unrest in nature and creation, verse 11, that will exist and continue for them. And then he establishes a personal physical distress and unrest, verse 12, in which they will be mistreated, threatened, beaten, locked up, that will exist for them. And for what? Would it be because they would be ornery or because they were Jews or for being in the wrong place at the wrong time or for being bad citizens? No, it would be for being Christians. 
Christ followers. The end of verse 12. For my name's sake. That's what this is all about. He's inviting them to come and die, basically. And instead of Jesus saying, don't worry about it, just keep your mouth shut, and you'll worm your way out of it when things get hard, he says this, this, in your arrest and your trial and your distress and your persecution will be your opportunity to bear witness. That's interesting, isn't it? So, So the bad circumstance is actually the opportunity... For you and I to be loud and bold for Christ. How good are we at that? I don't know. If I'm these guys, I'm thinking to myself right now, like, okay, like, let me get this straight. We're going to be hated by everyone for bearing witness of you, and then the way that we get out of it is by bearing witness for you. Right. <laughs> like, like, are you sure? And Jesus is like, yeah, I'm positive, right? Like, look at, look at verses 14 and 15. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. In other words, in this difficult circumstance that's above our pay grade, Jesus is going to make sure through the Holy Spirit to do the heavy lifting. Like, we don't have to sit there and try to articulate anything or put a bunch of good words together, right? We don't have to figure out how to, how to stop the mouths of lions. God's going to do that for us, right? That's what that means there. We see this over and over again in the book of Acts, right? It's so rad that we have the things recorded for us that we have recorded for us in the book of Acts. From the very beginning, you see Peter almost daily with John getting pulled in before the heavies. He's getting arrested and getting busted for testifying of Christ. And what is he doing there? He says these things that no one's able to withstand or contradict. They let him go because of it. That's, that's, that's what we're seeing here. It's, it's God working through these normal, ordinary men to navigate their circumstance and their difficulty. Right? He's giving them what they need to say. And so they would end up beat, beating them and threatening them and then sending them out just to do the same thing over and over again. You know what I mean? But we, that's what we see there. Jesus goes on to say, even your family and your friends, verse 16, are going to turn on you. I don't like this one. Even your family and your friends are going to turn on you. In other words, those who are once closest to you will want the worst for you. Again, where where do I sign up? Right? Sounds great. Can you say outcasts? Can you say aliens? Foreigners? Strangers? Sojourners? This is... What they have to look forward to by everyone and everything here on earth. Why? For his namesake. For following Jesus. I have a question for you. Is this what your life looks like, Christian? Can can we, like, relate to this at all? Can we connect to this at all? What I want to do at this point is I don't want to do a running commentary. We're not going to do surgery on this thing. Um, I want to make a few observations concerning Christians living in a cancel culture that hopefully apply to us, okay? This is going to be more of a self-analysis, all right, of ourselves. I'm going to do five of them if I can 
motor through it. Number one, you can't get canceled if you're quiet about Jesus. This is good news for some of us who are looking for an option. Just don't say anything or live anyway that's different or radical. Don't rock the boat. I have recently started into a series back home on the church's purpose on earth. Why are we here? Right? Like, why don't we just get raptured and glorified when we get saved? You know what I mean? It ain't because we're, we're, it, it ain't because of what we're doing here today. Because every single thing that we're doing here today as a gathered church, we will be doing better throughout eternity. Do you guys have any idea? You, you won't need someone doing this to you with the Word of God and your Bible open because you're going to be in the very presence of the Word, capital W. Do you have any idea what the singing is going to sound like in the throne room of the Father? Oh my goodness. Everything that we come together and we do right now as a church is going to go on, but better in eternity. The one thing that you and I will never be able to do again is share the gospel of life with someone who desperately needs it. Ever. We have been called out to call out. This is the primary reason why the church exists on earth. I know some of us don't like it. We go, oh, I'm not an evangelist. I don't have that gift. We people are here on earth going through everything that we're going through to call out further. That's why we're here. We have been left here to call out further for his name's sake, but do we really live that way? That's the question, right? Like one of the things that's bugged me about me for years now is my walk with Jesus, uh, with my walk with Jesus is this gnawing sense that I've largely bought into a Christianity that's centered around comfort and ease. Comfort and ease. And, and, and all I've had to do to accomplish that is live quietly. And because my life has been built around comfort and ease, it's been absent. This was the goal. Worked, worked out great. Of challenge and rejection and opposition and discomfort. So it works if you want to live quiet. Now, I'm not saying that I'm not saved or I question my salvation. I, I really don't. I'm just saying that I've been a tourist for years. Spurgeon said every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. How can he make a statement like that? How can you be so bold to make such an offensive statement like that to me? Well, because he believes this Bible and he reads it. That's how he makes a statement like that. You're either a missionary or an imposter if you're a Christ follower. For years, my living for his name's sake has been this kind of an idea. Go to church, bring one of my mini Bibles, sing some songs to Jesus, listen to a good sermon, go to work, retire, fish in a boat, play some golf, all the while waiting for the Lord to bring me home so that I can go from a good life to a better one. And it's taken me years to realize that that's not called following Jesus, that's called the American dream. We prefer this form of Christianity because we do not want to suffer any loss or difficulty or rejection or hate or bad vibes or cost while we're on the way to our prize. We do not want to be canceled. We do not want to rock the boat, but Jesus has promised that if we truly follow him, we will be. It's difficult for me to read narratives like this because these guys didn't live a quiet, peaceful, prosperous, comfortable gospel that hides beneath their earthly existence, but one of warfare over souls. 
They were not getting jailed and killed because they went to church as they went about their ordinary daily lives. They were getting jailed and killed because they would not stop proclaiming the good news of the gospel for his namesake. So it starts with us acknowledging and accepting that we have been called out to call out. Look, a hundred years from now, guys, bottom line, it ain't going to matter what kind of shoes you wore, what kind of car you drove, who you took to homecoming, who you took to prom, where you got your education. You know what I mean? It it ain't going to matter like what your gun collection looks like. It ain't going to matter how far you've traveled, what the coolest place is that you got to travel to on vacation. It ain't going to matter. It ain't going to matter who won the Super Bowl in 2023 or the World Series or the Stanley Cup. All that's going to matter is who is where. Who is where. And we people are the ones who have been given the words of life. If we can establish that, then we're on to something. And we will get canceled. Leads us to number two. The world may cancel the Christian, but the Christian does not cancel the world. Some of you may argue with this. That's fine. We'll talk afterward. The world may cancel the Christian, but the Christian does not cancel the world. There is something important for us to learn here, even by something that isn't even in this text. You know what I'm talking I call this inverted exposition. I just made that up. It sounds cool. Um, it is still, I think, an exposition, something that's not there that really should be. Uh, what is it? What is it that's missing here from what Jesus is saying to these guys? Uh, well, what's missing is the part where Jesus tells his disciples to fight back. It's the part where he tells them to defend themselves with force or with weapons or even with nasty attitudes of self-righteousness. It's not there. Like, what's missing is the part where he tells them that they get to retaliate um, the way a normal human being would under such pressures and opposition and hate. It's missing because doing so would be a direct contradiction and violation of that which Jesus came here to do. That which he used to destroy the works of Satan and overcome the world is the opposite of retaliation. It's clear in this text that if you devote your life to truly following Jesus, you will be canceled. Period. Our challenge then becomes not to cancel back. It's our default. I get it. And I have to say, and you, I mean, this is even harder for you guys. I'm kind of out in the sticks. Like you guys are like within, within arm's length of Cuckooville. You know what I mean? You know what I'm saying? What, what an opportunity. What an opportunity you guys have. Things might be darker than they've been in this country in forever, which just makes the gospel that much more relevant now. And you guys have all these people outside your front door that are so backwards and upside down and lost. And you have what they need, right? Like this is how Jesus won things. It's not by fighting back. It's not by canceling back. It's by engaging. It's by taking... Every opportunity that you possibly can while you have time. I have to say that from what I've seen in more recent years, though, the church has been doing a horrible job at not canceling back. Uh, Some of us have become very good conservatives, but very poor Christians. Some of us have become very good Republicans, but very poor ministers of reconciliation. I know you're not going to invite me back. I do love you. I'm not trying to make you mad. 
If you didn't know this before, I will tell you now, they are not the same thing. Our American flag and our Constitution and our nationalistic rights are not the same as an incarnation, a bloody cross, and an empty tomb. That is a different thing. This matters because if we think they're the same, we will end up with an anger and a hatred towards outsiders, which results in a withholding of gospel, compassion toward them. Cancel. Boom. That's why this matters, that we get this right. They will cease to be gospel candidates to us. It's at this point that when we disagree with their politics and worldviews and lifestyles, we will not seem to care if they live or if they die. Spiritually, we just write them off hoping that they, they get what they deserve. All I have to say is, praise God, he did not do this with you and me. Amen? Amen. I stand before you as a guy who does not deserve at all, in any way, on any level, that which I have with God today through Christ. I'm a filthy person. I don't know why he didn't cancel me years ago. I don't know why he let me walk this earth in the condition that I was in, but he did. He did not cancel me. He sent his son for me. And so I am here. And so I am new. And so are you. The idea that we would write off sinners for being sinners is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And it flies in the face of all that the cross is and all that the cross stands for. All that you and I enjoy today because of it. No, the follower of Christ goes after the enemy of God, pursuing the enemy of God with the love of the gospel, imploring them to repent and believe because it's their only hope. There is nothing else coming. There is nothing else that can do for them what they need other than the cross of Christ. The disposition of the Christian loving our enemies and not canceling them is everywhere in our New Testament writings. For the church, right? Even in the subtle places. Think about this for a minute. There's two letters. There's these things in two of these letters. Uh, This guy named the Apostle Paul wrote like, what, 13 of our 26 books. In, In two of those books, there's this thing at the end of those letters that bothers me every time I read them. And it shouldn't because it's so subtle. But um, it's Ephesians and Colossians. It comes at the very end. Do you know what those books have in common with, with Paul, where he's writing them from? Prison. And, and why is he writing them from prison? For the gospel. Okay? And then, and then he asks the church to pray for him. Do you know how? And this is the part that bothers me. That you would open for me a door. This is what he's asking the church at the end. Out of all the things that he can ask, that he would, that, 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 that God would open a door for him to share the mysteries of the gospel with the people in there. Like, I don't know what your prayers sound like. I know what my prayers sound like. When I'm in a bad circumstance, it's like, deliver me, deliver me, deliver me, deliver me, right? Get me out of here. Like, if I was Paul, I'd be, I'd be like, um, like, like, pray that God would get me out of here so I can get a nice meal and a nice shower and I can be together with you guys. I mean, that's a good thing, right? No, Paul doesn't do that. Out of all the things to pray for, help me, Lord, to share the gospel, the mysteries of God to my enemies, to the people that have put me here. And the people that are holding me here, right? This is everywhere that the Christian loves his enemy. This this guy Paul um, has some pretty valid reasons to cancel some people, right? And, And he doesn't. He ain't canceling anyone. Rather, he's fighting for their greatest good even still. 
Listen, our nation is changing rapidly. We all know that. We all feel that. It ain't the one that I was born into and grew up in. It's different in many ways. Evil is all the more being called good. Good is all the more being called evil. It's increasingly inverted. And if we're not careful as Christians, if we're not being led by the Spirit of God through the Word of God as we live in the midst of this national decline, we will begin to hate rather than love. We will begin to flee more than pursue. And once we've gone there, we have canceled the world. And once we have canceled the world, our witness is gone. And we have made the gospel out to be a lie. We have lost our mission and our purpose. Therefore, the world may cancel the Christian, but the the Christian does not cancel the world. Which brings us to number three. We're doing good. We're going to get there. Okay. Um, uh, Number three, know your enemy. Know your enemy. Right? Because we do have one. But, but, but if we don't identify who the enemy really is, we just might start fighting the wrong fights. You know what I'm saying? Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Humans. Humans. But against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. That's the spell that's been cast over humans. Against the spiritual forces of evil, where? Nobody? In heavenly places. In heavenly places. This is why we take up the whole armor of God, because our enemy is not a democratic party. It's not BLM. It's not, it's not even LGBTQ and then the rest of the alphabet. I don't even know how long it goes now. I don't know how long the train is. Okay? Like it's not communist China, the enemy. And it's not Russia. Like, but it's the one who's behind all these things that oppose God. That's the enemy. Spurgeon, again, he, he would talk about Satan like, this is like my enemy's like, it's like swinging at the mist trying to fight him. I can't do it. I can't see him. Right? This is what we're talking about. This, this guy, the true enemy is above our pay grade. He is spiritual, not human. Having said that, guess what the third piece of armor is that we are to dress into? Does anybody know? As shoes for your feet, the gospel of peace. Wow. What a contradiction it seems in warfare. The gospel of peace. Not hostility, not nastiness, not self-righteousness, not contention. Peace. Godless people do not need behavior modification. They need Jesus. They need reconciliation to the one who specializes in transformation of both heart and mind, right? They do not need to act like us. They do not need to look like us. They do not need to, to, to live like us. They need, first and foremost, their eyesight to be restored because they have been blinded by the real enemy over this current, present darkness, right? Well, how can you do such a thing? How can you fight such a thing? The gospel of peace. With the gospel of peace. That's how you do it. And the only way we will take this seriously and be moved to administer gospel to those who are lost is if we know that they're not our enemy. Oh, how hard is this one? With our political divides and just the chasm just grows, doesn't it? The nastiness and the faction just grows in this country. Colder and colder. 
people, they are not your enemy. You have a different one. Right. Number, uh, number four. These are going to be quicker. Know your kingdom. Number three, know your enemy. Number four, know your kingdom. Do you know where your citizenship lies actually fully? Right? This, this matters because a lot of us are living as if it's this one. As if it's this one. But know this, our monuments will be destroyed in this country. Our icons will be destroyed. Our documents will be destroyed. Our history will be destroyed. Our flag will be destroyed. Our temples will be destroyed too. So why in the world are we contending for all these things as if it's the promised land? It is not. Brothers and sisters, I love my country. I am not unpatriotic. You'll have to come to my house sometime. I've got all kinds of memorabilia and uh, antiquities. I love this country. If God would have sat me down like before he stuck me in my mom's womb, you know what I mean, with a map of the globe and said, where do you want to go? I promise you I would have been like, boom, right there. I want to be in that place. I, lo- I love my country, right? Like, like I wouldn't want to be in any other, but I need something better. And so do you. We all need something better. And you know what? We have it. We have it. It's just up ahead. It's just up ahead. These guys, the disciples of Christ, knew that. They knew that. And as painful as it may have been for these guys initially to hear that their nation and their temple would come to ruins, come to nothing, they believed they were part of something altogether bigger and altogether better which allowed them to walk away from the smoke and the rubble of their earthly kingdom and toward glory. They lived like they were kingdom citizens because they believed that they were kingdom citizens. You now belonging to God and I now belonging to God do not belong here anymore, people. We do not belong here anymore just like these guys. We are aliens. We are sojourners. We are foreigners, strangers, just passing through to your king and his kingdom. Know your kingdom. Finally, the the end will close here. Number five, know your temple. Because we have a temple that can't be destroyed, that's not made with hands. John chapter 2 Jesus makes this interesting statement to some angry temple merchants asking for a sign to validate his authority. And he, his response is this. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. And so he did. Right? Like, like they can take our superficial temples that we have and appreciate in this life, but they cannot destroy our most sacred one, the source of our true identity. They already tried that 2,000 years ago. It didn't work. They failed. They destroyed it, and then it stood again. He rose three days later going from life to life. And because Jesus went from life to life, all those who put their faith in him will too. We know this because of verses 18 and 19. They tell us so. Let me read that. You thought I was going to forget these two, didn't you? Thought I, were, I was going to leave them out. All right. 18, 19. Not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. No matter what this world throws at us, Christian, we go from life to life. Life to life. Because he who is faithful has promised. 
Because our true temple still stands, right? We must remember and take like maximum comfort in the fact that you and I do not have a temple that can be destroyed. We do not have a temple that can be dismantled, but one that is indestructible, bulletproof, fireproof, uncancelable, uncancelable. I do not even know where to begin to describe or quantify like the ways that Jesus is the better temple. There's too many. Uh, I would certainly get in trouble if we tried. But, but let me just share one of them. With the old temple, it was a place where works had to be tirelessly and continually performed and offered from man to God. With the new temple, Jesus Christ, it was a place where works were performed and offered by God for man. Oh, this is huge. Right? One of them said, do, 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 and do some more. And the other one says, done. Done. In one temple, works went into it, and the others, works came out of it. And you and I are the benefactors of every single one of them. Fully and completely. This is the hope of the nations. This is the hope of the nations. Do not forget who you were. Do not forget where you came from. Do not forget what you deserve. Right? And do not keep what you have and love to yourself. Things will get hard as the days get darker. But we do not cancel back. As the darkness gets more dark, the light will shine brighter. And you will go from life to life no matter what. What's the worst thing they can do? Lord God, thank you for this time. Thank you for this text. Thank you for this day. Thank you that what you've promised is so. That there's nothing we need to worry about. Because you have fixed all things by your sovereign grace and power. So that there's nothing that can really be taken from us, God. I pray that we would repent in ways that we need to, in the way that we've been looking at the world around us. God, give us more love. Give us more of what your son had. More compassion, bigger hearts, God, to share the gospel while there's time. So strengthen your church, God, with urgency of glorifying your name and being about you. And we ask it to your glory. Amen.